we could have a really climate resilient coffee. If it tastes awful, it's an absolute non-starter. The reason why we're looking at alternative species or reinvigorating some of those so-called lost species is the fact that we will need to broaden the number of crops that are available to farmers so they're able to continue to grow coffee in the places that they've always grown coffee. The average American coffee drinker will have just over three cups of coffee each day. That's a lot of java. But that morning cup of joe is being hard-pressed. Water scarcity is putting coffee growers at risk and could spell trouble for anyone who needs their caffeine fix. I'm Jay Familietti. Today on What About Water, we look at coffee, one of the most widely consumed beverages in the world, and one of the most traded commodities globally. But you actually know the impact climate change has on that cup of brew? That's something my next guest is investigating. Aaron Davis is a coffee scientist and senior research leader at the Kew Royal Botanic Gardens in the UK. His work is focused on crops and global change. He's the leading authority on coffee species, and he joins us now from his office in London. Aaron, welcome to What About Water? Thank you. Tell us why focus your research on, of all things, coffee. Oh, it started, I guess, uh, at least a decade ago when my research focus wasn't really on climate change. It was on the distribution of wild coffee species. And one of the things that became apparent quite quickly is that each of those wild species has a very restricted distribution. And when we started climate projections across this century, we started to notice a a really distinct signal that many of those species would be endangered, threatened with extinction under climate change. And then we started to look at individual crop species in in more detail, uh, particularly in major producing countries like Ethiopia. And the clear indication was that here was a crop that was already being impacted by climate change and that those impacts would only increase as as we go through the century. So what's interesting to me, and I didn't realize that um, there's many species of coffee that exist in narrow sort of climatological bands so that they are actually a sensitive indicator of climate change. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. In fact, the coffee family in in general, which is uh, mainly a tropical family, is is a really good indicator of forest health and, you know, climate change. Uh, It doesn't take much to push them out of those niches and those those very narrow climate envelopes. And I think the other thing to realise is that we're dealing here with a perennial crop, a crop that's in the ground for a long time. Coffee is a tree. So it not only has to take those weather events of that year, but over many, many years. So although even though it's a short-lived tree, let's say 25, 30 years, it still has to be in the ground and suffer all the consequences of severe weather perturbations. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people know this, but most coffee we drink comes from only two species. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we have in the wild 131 species, 
and we drink really just two, Arabica and Robusta. Arabica is a cool tropical species and is rather sensitive to uh, increasing temperatures. Robusta, on the other hand, which has wider distribution across tropical Africa in its natural state, is more heat tolerant than Arabica, but likes to have even soil moisture. Mm. So it's more sensitive to changes in precipitation and shortages of precipitation. So, you know, you've touched on a, a research area of mine, which is soil moisture, re, uh, remote sensing of soil moisture and soil moisture variability. And we can get into that a little bit later because I understand that there's not a lot of interest in irrigation by growers. But before we go there, I, I want to talk about these other species, which are not, we're not talking about GMO. Like you said, they're natural species. I think the thing to really appreciate is that if we went back 100 years, the coffee crop portfolio would be broader than it is today. So many more species were in commerce towards the end of the 1800s. And once Robusta came into ascendancy at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, the other species got left behind. And what we have to remember is that the coffee landscape of the world pre-Robusta was pretty much 100% Arabica. And it was only because Arabica failed in the face of a really serious disease called coffee leaf rust that Robusta came into play. And it came into play to replace uh, Arabica in those areas where it had failed because of the disease. And because Robusta was so productive and so hardy, those other species really faded into obscurity. Uh, and we're I left see. now with two species. So does the name Robusta have anything to do with its uh, robustness with respect to climate? Uh, yes, to respect to climate. Uh, there are some people that believe that it's also due to its flavor, its robust flavor. I haven't quite nailed the exact reason why it's called Robusta, but it certainly is robust in a, in a number of uh, in a number of ways. I, I like the two-part explanation that it's the flavor and it's a, it's a hardiness with respect to climate. So I, I'm going to go with that. But but tell us, why do we need to start now, since we've been doing fine with Arabica and Robusta, why do we need to start thinking about growing these different species and bringing them back? Look, we have been doing fine with, with just two species. They've fulfilled our re requirements. Arabica is our supreme quality coffee that we really the one that we really like to drink robusta on the other hand is used in espresso blends and in instance and together they fulfill our requirements uh, the requirements of the global coffee sector and i think we wouldn't be having this discussion if it were not for climate change and i think that's that well that is the game changer the reason why we're looking at alternative species or reinvigorating some of those so-called lost species is the fact that we will need to broaden the number of crops that are available to farmers so they're able to continue to grow coffee in the places that they've always grown coffee. I'm curious about the the taste and you know taste comes first. Is there a compromise in taste when we're talking about the different species? Yeah, I mean, that's that's really the, a key issue because coffee is all about the taste. And what we've seen from 
historical ventures, including those, I um, must say, led by Q uh, in, in the past, is that we've found species that are certainly have all the agronomic traits that are required for a successful crop. But that's all very well. You also need the buyers to be engaged with that coffee. And if the taste or the flavor is not there, then it's a it's not going to work. And that's what happened with Liberica, we think, in the late 1800s, where it was a major commodity, but really fell out of favor and didn't compete with even Robusta because of its poor flavor quality. So yeah, there are extremely heat and drought tolerant coffees, but the taste is so challenging they they just wouldn't be acceptable to the average coffee drinker. No, I'm curious. Like if we did a blindfolded taste test, how I might do. Is the coffee flavor, you know, are the profiles that different or do you have to have like a, a really sensitive palate? Let's not underestimate the expertise and training that goes into being a coffee toaster. It is a highly qualified profession. And in fact, there's only a certain number of people that can really become coffee tasters for physiological reasons. But I think that most of us can tell a bad coffee or a coffee that we prefer over another one. And, as, you know, as one of the things that we're really focused on is not only the climate resiliency attributes, but also the flavor. So we're working across what we call the value chain from farm to consumer to understand how that all works together. Because we, as I say, we could have a really climate resilient coffee. If it tastes awful, it's an absolute non-starter. And I think that's the real, for me, one of the most exciting aspects of, of our research over the last few years is that we've, we have found coffees that have a good taste and in some cases a superior taste and have really good attributes that can be used for coffee crop breeding uh, etc. So I, you know, I think it's really clear that different people like different things in their coffee. Yeah. And we do believe we have coffees that will satisfy um, a broad range of of drinkers. But also, I w- I would say that you know there's scope here for extending the coffee drinking experience, bringing in new experiences for for coffee lovers, and that's also really exciting. Speaking of experiences, I'm curious about uh, if I were to visit your lab, what I would see. And I just want to tell you what I'm envisioning. I'm envisioning a bunch of hipsters like doing pour overs and, you know, they've got their laptops out or, you know, they're reading the paper. Am I on track or is it uh, more scientific than that? If only it was that uh, cool (laughs) and hip. I mean, my, my office, I think it looks part library part coffee shop you know I, I i do i engage a lot with baristas and roasters and and cuppers but i also like to do my own tasting and roasting so i have a uh, in my little office i have a, a roasting machine a you know coffee grinder a coffee maker everything i need to evaluate coffee but if i really want to do it as best as possible then i'll go to the professionals it sounds to me like, Aaron, if you had a uh, restroom in your office, you would have everything that you need and you would never have to leave. Uh, well, when I was asked to choose my office, I chose the one that was directly opposite the tea room where there's a coffee boiler. <laughs> so I've got a very short, 
commute to get hot water to, to brew coffee. But, you know, having you as, a, uh, as an office mate, that must be very interesting because the smells must be pretty strong when you're actually roasting. So, yeah, let's not imagine that I've got a huge, great coffee roaster in my room. What I have is a, is a very nice, neat piece of equipment called an Akawa Pro 50, and that will roast 25 to 50 grams of coffee in a very expert way, according to a very specific roasting profile. But the really important thing is that I can vent the fumes out of the window and all the, there's no mess involved. So it's absolutely perfect. And yeah, I do have some raised eyebrows uh, with colleagues walking past. Also, when the grinder's going and the roaster's going, uh, there are some raised eyebrows. But it's all in the quest. It's all in you know the quest of uh, scientific ex- that's, <laughs> excellence. That's right. It goes. It goes with the territory. And you know, if I were in your office complex, I would probably be knocking on your door all of the time. And when we come back, we're going to talk about water and its role in growing coffee. Hey there, I'm Jen Cannell, one of the people behind What About Water. We are all about the quest for scientific excellence when it comes to water and coffee. The next time you're waiting for yours to brew, why not leave us a review? That way, more people hear about What About Water and we'll let your suggestions percolate. Okay, now back to Aaron and Jay. Okay, welcome back. Today our guest is Aaron Davis of Q Royal Botanic Gardens, and we're talking about coffee. I need to take a sip right now. That's, that's good stuff, but now I'm curious. Aaron, this is a water podcast, so I have to ask, how much water does it actually take to grow a coffee plant? Yeah, I mean, water is all important. And I, I'm unlike you, I'm not a hydrologist. <laughs> it's not my area of expertise. But we have a big focus on understanding the, the, the water requirements of coffee, particularly as we're seeing shifts in precipitation patterns shifts in seasonality, reduction in the amount of precipitation. So it's really, it's absolutely key. Now, your question, how much water does a coffee plant require? I mean, I don't think we have uh, the exact answer on that. But uh, some years ago, I remember a study saying that irrigated robusta plants in Vietnam were receiving a 1,000 litres per year. So if you imagine... Let's say that produces a couple of jars of instant coffee. That's a really heavy water burden. Mm-hmm. I think that's un- unacceptable. And that has implications. You know, you're taking the water from a ground source in, in some cases. And that has all sorts of implications for agriculture and, and natural vegetation in that area. So it's, it's something that's not sustainable. And in many areas is, is a, a serious issue. Yeah, it's a challenge that we face all over the world because uh, in these places that have limited water supplies, that region may decide that using the water to grow coffee is maybe not the best use. Maybe there's you know other crops that need to be grown to help provide calories and nutrition for that region. And I'm curious about the farms you visited and the growers that you 
have spoken to? Are they in tune with climate change? Are they afraid? Do they have fears about climate change? Yes, they do. Uh, you know, we work mainly in East Africa, but also in West Africa. And I think when we started, there was this perception put upon us that f actually, you know what, farmers really don't understand, the, you know, what's going on. Uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. In places like Ethiopia and Uganda, you have people that have been farming coffee for several generations in the same location. They not only know the yearly weather cycle very, very well, the seasonality, but they, they're able to go back three or four generations to tell you the changes that their family has perceived over those generations. And that corresponds incredibly well with recorded climate change. And they live in it. You know, their farms are in the coffee fields, in, in those environments. And I think the focus has been on temperature. And temperature, of course, is very important. But if you have water, you can grow coffee in California, Queensland. Even now in the Mediterranean, they're starting to grow Arabica in Sicily. But that's only possible with irrigation. And what you, know, you can achieve marvellous things with irrigation. As I've said, that comes at a cost. But if you speak to farmers, if they had water, they would be drinking it, using it for sanitation or growing higher value crops. And I think the really important point here is coffee for many farmers is not a high value crop. It may be the crop that they depend on, but other crops have a higher value. So that is... Uh, extremely interesting, tremendous parallels, of course, to all the growing regions around the world. I spent a lot of time in California, and and certainly that's a, the discussion. You know, if you're going to irrigate and spend more money as the price of water goes up, as it becomes more scarce, what are the high-value crops? And, um, you know, I love coffee, but maybe the solution is not irrigation and just to shift to some of these other, you know, the work that you're doing. If we can do these things from a rain-fed operational farming standpoint, it's certainly much more sustainable. Yeah, there are options for irrigation. You can create ponds, lakes, and use that as an irrigation source. That's possible in many developed countries and some developing countries, but most farmers will tell you that there's simply not enough profit. There's not enough investment potential to even do any simple uh, interventions such as a irrigation pond. So in many cases, it's just not possible. And, the, and when I say not possible, I'm talking about some of the key coffee producing areas of the world. You know, we can't suddenly switch over to, to all irrigated. It's just impossible. So yeah, very much our focus is on rain fed agriculture. And, you know, we have some wild coffees that are actually are in production in a small scale that require half the amount of rainfall compared to Arabica, a third of the rainfall compared to Robusta. And they have traits such as deciduousness. So in the dry season, they lose their leaves. So I thought, perhaps we'll be drinking deciduous coffees rather than evergreen coffees. <laughs> the other point about the perennial nature of coffee, the fact that it's a tree, let's just look at what happened in Brazil last year with drought and frost. Total production volumes for Brazil are very, very down, and that's had a massive influence on global prices. Global prices have pretty much doubled over the last year. And that is set to continue because if your trees are killed by drought, 
you've got to then wait four years before you get another crop. Unlike maize or a cereal crop or an annual crop, you can't plant next year and say, oh, and get back to where you were. There's a long delay, and that has big implications on, on livelihoods and on, on long-term profits. I want to ask you about the role of the coffee giants like Starbucks in promoting a shift in, in raising awareness about these other species. Is there interest at that level? Because, you know, they can drive, of course, right? The food and beverage industry industry can drive that consumer demand. Yeah. Um, that was a heavy sigh. So. That's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question. I think there's many things that can be done. One of the things that we have to tackle, of course, the root causes of climate change. We need to understand carbon requirements in the coffee value chain and do something about that. Um, we also need to look at deforestation, which is also part of the whole carbon sequestration issue and, and many other things, of course. And I think there's easy gains to be made on transparent labelling and making the buyer aware of what their purchasing choices mean. Are they buying a coffee that causes deforestation? Or are they buying a coffee that's actually an agent of forest preservation, biodiversity, conservation, improvement or retention of carbon storage? So I think we need to take a really long, hard look at implications of the value chain and make sure that we get the simple wins first. The other question is about, you know, the big players. You've got your Starbucks, they're more on the retail side. You've also got the people who buy the world's coffee spread mainly across say 10 large companies and and they're engaged you know they're they are interested in, in what we're doing we're we are working with those stakeholders in the coffee sector we've gone from sort of fantasy level to reality level and we're starting to get traction um, we'll start importing more climate resilient coffee this year for example personally i wish i'd have started this 20 years ago <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd be in a much better position in terms of providing a reasonable le level of adaptation for coffee farmers. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere. So let me give you an example from two of our projects. One in Uganda. And it's really interesting for a number of reasons, but one of the really compelling occurrences that, that we've witnessed is the fact that farmers have been using a coffee species from the wild and growing it on their farms in preference to Robusta coffee. So this is something that's led by farmers, not by NGOs or research scientists or governments. This has been their decision, use of their genetic material and IP to resolve the adaptation issue, which is really interesting. It's, it's I think, pretty much unique in that sense. And they, they're, they're achieving a huge measure of success they're now growing this wild type of Liberican around, I think it's about 700 farms. And the reason why it's successful is because it's more climate tolerant. It achieves a better price. It's got a better taste than Robusta. It's more disease and pest resistant. And, and it really is gaining traction. And, and it finds its way into the supply chain. Where we fit in with that is to understand really what it can do in terms of climate adaptation uh, what are the best types to upscale 
put some metrics, put some science behind making the right decisions for upscaling. In Sierra Leone, on the other hand, where we're working with Stenophila coffee, and it was only because of historical references to an excellent taste and useful agronomic attributes that got us interested. And now we're starting to develop that species in that country with a view to providing a climate-appropriate crop for, for Sierra Leone. Is there something that consumers should be mindful of the next time they're at a coffee shop and they are ordering a cup of coffee or they're in the grocery store buying a pound of, of coffee beans? Yeah, certainly, um, if they can buy coffees that work for farmers, that improve livelihoods, particularly in the direct trade model, where there's a direct link between the roaster and the purchaser. The farmer gets an improved livelihood in most cases. But I really think we have to wait because at the moment, I think it's really difficult for people to make the right decisions in certification. Although it might say rainforest or fair trade on the packet, that doesn't guarantee a good outcome. And I think, you know, one thing that consumers can do is, yes, buy those coffees that purport to, to provide benefits, but they should be pushing retailers and big coffee companies to really be transparent about where their coffee comes from and what impact it has, good or bad, hopefully good. Okay, thanks very much, Aaron. It's been great. Uh, we really appreciate your joining us today. You're very welcome. Aaron Davis is the Senior Research Leader of the Crops and Global Change Team at the Kew Royal Botanic Gardens in the UK. So Aaron Davis points out a number of coffee growers are trying out new species. In Sierra Leone, research is looking at more climate-resilient coffee. My name is Daniel Samu. I am a development worker in Kenema, Eastern Sierra Leone. I am currently in uh, one of the nurseries where the, the Stenophila coffee is being nursed for domestication. The seedlings are from the wild. At the end of the day, after obtaining proper research results, we'll be able to distribute this to smallholder farmers who will cultivate it so that they will be able to make money for themselves and for the country as a whole. The Stenophila coffee was cultivated and traded in Sierra Leone in the 1800s. But the coffee disappeared from the world nearly 100 years ago. It was rediscovered in 2018 by Professor Jeremy Hager, Dr. Aaron Davis, and my very self. This coffee has proven to have excellent taste and excellent aroma. The roasters and coppers have said that it is the best they have ever tasted. One good quality of the Stenophila coffee is that it is resistant to climate change. The reason why I want farmers to start growing Stenophila coffee is that it will really provide them a niche market and will give them comparative advantage in terms of price over all the other crops that they are growing in Australia. 
Currently, farmers in Sierra Leone are engaged in the cultivation of Robusta coffee, which has a poor market price. And as such, the farmers have abandoned their Robusta coffee fees, quickly transforming them into cocoa fees, oil palm fees, and rice fees, which is not paying them the dividend that they are really expecting. I'm currently trying to help farmers in the forest health communities to search for the Stenophila coffee in the wild and try to actually domesticate them. My hope and dream for the coffee farmers in Sierra Leone is that international research institutes or institutions will be able to work on the Stenophila coffee to make it a high yielding and early maturation crop so that smallholder farmers will plant the Stenophila coffee and we'll be able to have a niche market in the world. And they will also be proud to provide the world with good tasting and good aroma coffee. Very unique. That was Daniel Sarmu, who works closely with Aaron Davis and is drafting the Sierra Leone National Coffee Policy. That's it for this episode of What About Water? We record and produce this podcast on Treaty 6 territory, the homeland of First Nations and Métis people. It's produced by the Walrus Lab and the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. For more resources, check out whataboutwater.org. Our crew here at What About Water is Mark Ferguson, Aaron Stevens, Laura McFarlane, Fred Rebin, Jesse Widow, Sean Ahmed, and Andrea Rowe. Our audio engineer is Wayne Giesbrecht, and our producers are Farah Akhtar and Jen Cannell. What About Water is available on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Jay Famoyetti. Thanks for listening. <laughs>